Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Infrastructure is one of the key issues impacting Austin's rapid growth. Whether it's water, roadways and transit, or power, we must ensure that we have the resources to handle our growth. Today, we focus on power. Joining us is Christy Cardenas, managing partner, Grit Ventures. Grit Ventures focuses in part on new energy sources, distribution systems, and transportation. Christy is an early stage builder in the real asset and infrastructure space. She focuses her time on clean energy and logistics, in addition to AI and data platforms. Prior to Grit Ventures in large-scale private equity, she invested with First Reserve and Arroyo Energy in the ongoing clean energy revolution across energy and power infrastructure sectors. Her focus spanned the value chain, including solar, wind, biomass, energy efficiency, hydrogen fuel cells, and transportation, among others. Christy started her career in energy investment banking at Citi during the last credit crisis, working on a variety of M&A, IPO, and debt issuances across the upstream, midstream, oil field services, and petrochemical sectors. Christy has also enjoyed roles at Mercury Fund and Ecliptic Capital and continues to serve in an advisory role to both firms. She is intimately familiar with both economic and technological transformations, investing throughout the ongoing energy revolution across capital markets. She's investing in similar transformations across many sectors. Christy is intimately familiar with both economic and technological transformations, investing throughout the ongoing energy revolution across capital markets. She's investing in similar transformations across many sectors, all in support of a better future. Christy, welcome to the Austin Next podcast. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start off a little bit with your background. How did you get involved in startups and venture capital? You know, good question. I'm not a traditional venture capitalist. I sort of came from the other direction. I started in investment banking at Citi right around the last credit crisis. Um, you know, speak of the devil. Then um, moved into large-scale private equity in energy infrastructure and power. So doing really big construction projects. We had like $30 billion under management. And there's just only so much you can do in the later stages. And there was so much changing around me. And I just, I got sort of swept in by this, uh, you know, promise of building a better world. And, you know, long story short, I moved from big infrastructure into uh, venture capital in Austin, honestly, and it, it happened quickly. So why don't you walk us through Grit Ventures and kind of the thesis behind the firm? Yeah, sure. So um, Grit Ventures is about grit, shockingly enough, you know, the, the kind of extra magic it takes to do things that are difficult. And that's really where we focus um, in a couple of different veins. We're early stage investors, kind of first money in where the going gets tough or the tough get going. The, we do hard tech and deep tech, which is what where we believe the largest opportunity is, but is also you know, notably difficult. We focus on new and diverse founders. And you know, Grit, my partner is a woman at a Menlo Park where I think it's sort of a, like a wink to the underrepresented. You know, it takes a little something extra. And that's really, you know, how we focus early stage, deep tech, new and diverse founders, emerging hubs, 
creating, you know, new real value and, um, you know, an impact orientation, trying to, you know, save the world. So one of the things that I've noticed, if you go back, I don't know, five, six years, the number of deep tech VCs was a very, very small group. I feel like that's changed and that there is a, a, a more of a focus on that. And of course, it's funny, we use deep tech, hard tech, frontier, lots of different kind of terms in there. So one, how do you define that? And two, why do you think that's, it's now a moment that people are starting to focus more on it? Yeah, I definitely think that I am seeing more deep tech investors. And even from the big VCs, their rhetoric has kind of changed towards deep tech. The way that I define it is more kind of technical risk as opposed to deep market risk. So, you know, we look at horizontal technologies like robotics and AI and energy and power that really span across the industrial value chain. Whereas, you know, a lot of VC is, you know, e-commerce or consumer, or very healthcare, you know, very kind of single industry, single market focused with a business model innovation. You know, I think that these huge, there's kind of a, a macro pull going on in, with labor shortages. I mean, we're we're short 10 million workers. That's the size of the state of Michigan, the 10th largest state. We this you can't avoid the supply chain disruption. It's everywhere. The energy situation, which we'll talk a lot about, is a mess. Gasoline prices are sky high. Inflation is sky high. There's these very real problems that are rooted in the physical world. And in order to solve them, you really have to go kind of revert to value and go to these deeper technological innovations. Um, that said, the majority of capital is still in software and e-commerce and consumer and kind of just the stuff that we've been doing for the last 30 years, you know, um, and that's playing out in the markets now. There's a bit of a mess out there. Guessing you're seeing that. Indeed, there is. I want to start off in terms of talking about background. We have energy issues that are ranging from Europe to California to here in Texas. How do, how do you look at that? How do you see what's going on? And where's Grit Ventures playing in that space? Yeah, good question. I think it, this is a, a crazy moment in history, you know, just when it comes to energy. The markets had really run up. Russia invades Ukraine. Um, Europe is so heavily dependent on Russia for energy. I think it's a big part of why Putin thought he could invade Ukraine. Um, so oil and gas prices go sky high. And you have this situation where money, institutional money, has committed to fossil fuel divestiture in mass, like 40 trillion, which is the size of the S&P 500 market cap. It's, you know, huge amounts of capital. And they really can't go back at this, you know, they've made commitments. And there is this underlying technology risk when it comes to resources. Like we saw it in coal, like shale technology really changed the game for coal. It died almost overnight you know, and the same thing is in the process of happening with uh, natural gas and renewables and oil and electrification. And it just, we're still dependent, but this kind of root risk that it could die overnight, I think is, is scaring a lot of money. Um, so we're in this very difficult situation of the reality of having 
very high gasoline prices and high inflation until we solve this with technology. And that's really where we're focused is, you know, what are the right technologies and how do you bring those to market more efficiently than people have done in the past? What are those technologies that we need to bring to market? Well, there's a lot out there, you know, I mean, we, we haven't really been focusing on energy innovation for, as from a venture capital perspective for the last like 30 years, you know, since clean tech 1.0 burst. And so there's a lot of early, early tech out there. Um, we're looking at um, new forms of storage. You know, there's a lot that's not sustainable about lithium ion and, and there's no standardization in the battery market right now. You can't, you can't easily transport it. What's nice about oil as a store of energy is it flows. Right. You know, you can. So we're looking at um, different kinds of fuels, different batteries that are uh, pumped by fuel. We're looking at hydrogen. It's early. You know, it's another kind of storage mechanism. We're looking at reuse and recycling and waste and circular economy and just better ways of getting the job done. You know, more efficient motors, stuff that allows us to reduce demand as well as, uh, you know, manage the supply side more cleanly. Storage has always been an issue I've been interested in. I've had clients when I was an IV that had non-lithium ion safe batteries, but a megawatt of storage was the size of hmm, half an acre kind of thing. Um, I mean, the most spectacular clean storage I've seen was the hydro, where you'd pump it up at night and then let it fall and let gravity turn turn your uh, your generators. Where do you see storage going? Are we going to be able to have this storage revolution that we need for that side of the equation? Yeah, I think um, things are going to change, definitely. I mean, lithium ion is old tech, you know, right, right out of UT Austin, but it was discovered like in the 70s, mm-hmm. you know, and so we've, we've just gotten the prices down, but the, the minerals and mining requirement is not sustainable. The batteries aren't dense enough. They're not good enough, basically, is, you know, for the extent of what we fully need. I mean, I'm really focused on, um, you know, like, and I say fuels, there's a flow battery that I'm looking at that's uh, funded by the Department of Defense. I mean, I really like that because it's easily transportable. And not only that, so I'm looking for transportable solutions that uh, improve on the qualities of lithium ion that are organic and sustainable and also have the potential to be standard, you know, like oil or a commodity or, you know, something that we could really do throughout the value chain and could potentially even integrate with this enormous legacy infrastructure that we've spent billions and billions on oil and gas infrastructure. And we need to be able to, you know, repurpose it. I've always joked with folks that one of the reasons why we still have uh, telephones is instead of being 100% mobile is because of all the gigatons of copper we have buried in the ground. And so that the energy infrastructure is much the same way. How do you look at some of the other areas of the energy infrastructure, like distribution and load balancing and, and those parts of it? Yeah, I think there's a lot you can do with digital solutions, you know, like AI and improved uh, routing and efficiency and just smarter allocation. The utilities are tough. 
I do think that, you know, I mean, that's an understatement. They go to market and energy is complex. And that's a big part of, you know, we have all this tech, but you really have to figure out how to get it to market. We're looking at new forms of power generation, which is a bit more spry. You know, you you don't necessarily have to engage with the utility for power generation. You can contract it independently and do things a bit differently. Um, You know, the transmission and distribution system, the grid is just so heavily regulated but that said, huge opportunity. Like if you look at how much EV, just EV alone, we need like four to five times the grid that we have today. You know, I mean, there's just some crazy stats out there. I, I one time heard that uh, a manager of a large public utility said, if we had to have 20% or 30% of our cars being EVs, we'd literally melt the current grid. It just, <laughs> it's just not going to happen without some massive infrastructure improvements. Um, I, you know, we're looking at moving to a much different environment for energy. And I guess the question is, what do we do between now and then? I mean, we've heard talk of clean coal and fourth G nuclear power and storage and microgrids and and all these things, but to get to that abundancy, how do we, what, what's going to get us there? Yeah. I mean, one, I think recognition of the reality of the situation that we do have a dependency on oil and gas. That's real life. Like I drive a gasoline car. I want to save the world with clean energy, but like I am totally dependent on the petrochemical complex, you know? And I actually just started my career coming from Texas. I started in oil and gas and I don't think villainizing that industry is going to do us any good. Um, I think, in fact, we need to build bridges and that will make things go more quickly because they have the legacy industry has so much economic power. Um, you need decarbonization. So, you know, like the EIA projects that by 2050, we're still going to be using like natural gas and coal for like half of our power generation, which is a ton. So like, clearly we're going to have to decarbonize that, but there's not a lot of tech out there for decarbonization. I mean, it's one big piece that I see that's neglected. We need better storage. We need more efficient generation. We need new forms of generation that aren't fossil fuel dependent. And it's going to depend heavily on infrastructure solutions and the government. I think the government is a huge part of it, honestly, because they have a big problem themselves. Just with, yeah, I mean, climate change, certainly, but gas prices being so high is is an exposure you don't want, you know? True. And of course, there's always one of my favorite answers to the distribution issue is microgrids. We have microgrids for water. Why can't we have microgrids for power? Totally. I do think that um, just distributed solutions generally are going to, that's the future, clearly, like community oriented and distributed solutions that, you know, more efficiently allocate resources. Yeah. How do we convince policymakers that this is not a one election cycle issue, that we're not going to decarbonize the entire world by, oh, I don't know, 2025, 2024? It's a complex situation getting humans to make long-term decisions in their best interest, you know? Um, And that's true of the public sector, but also the private markets. 
I mean, it's a challenge that I see and deal with on a day-to-day basis. I think the question is not, do we need to solve this? It's more how do we need to solve it? And how does that affect our our geopolitical global standing? That to me feels like really the biggest lever. Like, okay, so if you look at China, you know, China doesn't have the natural resources that we as America has. And so they have a bigger problem on their hands to solve. And so they're outspending us on energy transition two to one. You know, they have uh, 50, over 50% market share in uh, electric vehicles, solar, wind, and lithium-ion battery equipment. And I think they're, they're this fear of just China's control over the global manufacturing complex and that really, you know, extending into energy and disrupting fossil fuels is a very real risk that we need to be aware of and meet head on. And that I, you know, I'm sort of a, a, I won't, I'll try not to preach to you guys about just the energy technology, but I just, I believe it's the key to the future. It, you know, it's, it's so energy, in, you know, dominance is so critical to geopolitical power. It's like everything. And we're at this sensitive moment in time. Well, and to you your know? point, you were bringing up kind of, you know, you said that China doesn't have the same natural resources that we do, except for rare earth. <laughs> so yeah. the, the one element that we want to definitely shift, uh, you know, from a geopolitical okay. away from. Wait, wait, wait. Let's not forget the other country that has all these rare earths, Afghanistan. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so we need stuff we can make here. I think that's another big thing. We need domestic American stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, as we talk about, we want to make these kind of transitions and, you know, how the government is or is not inv- involved. You know, we didn't, haven't spoken a ton about nuclear, but an interesting comment that I heard on a different podcast a little while ago was the the nuclear regulatory agency, whatever the proper three letter acronym is, which is supposed to be, you know, hasn't actually approved a new nuclear plant in 30 years. I'm not sure that that is actually something that is there for innovation. If you're going into that and you haven't done it, you haven't said yes in 30 years, I'm thinking that it's not going to help with any sort of transition, right? Yeah, this is another complex human problem. You know, there's a lot of fear with nuclear. People are freaked out. They, those are big disasters when we don't manage it appropriately. Um, people are taking, because it's, it, people are taking different approaches because it is in a lot of ways, a really nice power source. You know, it's efficient. It doesn't have the same kind of uh, challenges. It's clean. Um, the uh, So I'm seeing a lot of small scale nuclear and a lot of just efficient, you know, renewable driven reaction processes. Like there's a big f- and fusion laser at UT Austin. There's like some cool kind of next level stuff going on that you'd probably be surprised by. People are getting out there. Not surprised, but happy. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, let's bring it a little more local into, you know, into Texas and Austin. Obviously, when we think Texas, you think energy, right? So how would you describe the actual new energy innovation that is being both invented here and actually deployed? Yeah. So I see this whole situation as a massive challenge and opportunity for Texas. I think it's the opportunity of a lifetime, honestly. Anytime things change so rapidly, 
you know, like really a lot of this is triggered by COVID. Like oil prices went negative. Everybody has their hair on fire. The world just changed. Okay, we need to handle things differently. Um, so we have uh, a couple things going for us. A lot of new people, like, like new talent that has flooded in. A lot of them are really impact oriented, you know, and that that means clean tech entrepreneurs. And I feel like in Austin, I'm like tripping over clean tech entrepreneurs. You know, I think that's going to be a real strength for Austin. As far as the rest of Texas, I am seeing there's some clean tech. There's some, uh, there are other industrial applications that I think are also positive for energy and sustainability, but are not necessarily, not necessarily energy like, uh, robotics is a good example. Like if you look at the oil and gas economy, a big chunk of that is services and machine fleets of machines. And there's a whole body of expertise that knows how to do that stuff. Like I see a major robotics hub forming here, you know, advanced manufacturing, like basically the potential for Texas to solve some of these big labor and, you know, domestic manufacturing problems in a tech forward way that allows it to uh, leverage its industrial economy, you know, cheap land, cheap electricity, huge force of engineering talent, all sorts of expertise associated with structuring capital intensive stuff because of oil and gas and a a super sophisticated industrial infrastructure, you know, I mean, in we're globally central, we can import export. I mean, there's just so many things that are moving in that direction and clean energy is going to be a big part of it. Um, And UT Austin honestly has a lot going on there. You know, I think a big chunk of what's happening at UT is they're such a strong petroleum engineering group. What does that turn into? And it just logically, you immediately go to decarbonization, which there's not enough of. We really need it. Geothermal, these very direct adjacencies to oil and gas, I think will be something that Texas is really good at. Yeah, I actually saw something recently that fracking technology may be what helps to unlock geothermal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're drilling holes in the ground. It's early. I mean, all of this stuff is pretty early, like we're sorting it out. But there are a lot of these oil field services companies are racing after geothermal. You know, they're trying to figure out, okay, what does it make sense for us to be doing with all of the talent and expertise and resources that we have? And in a lot of ways, clean energy outside of technology, more like renewables, like solar and wind, this stuff is low risk, low return. You know, it sits there, it soaks up the sun. There's, it doesn't do much. You're you're getting like eight to 10% returns off of it. Whereas oil and gas, this is like heavy CapEx, high risk, high return. We're talking 30, 40% plus returns. And so I think it's kind of a difficult shift for these oil and gas guys to look at renewable electricity, which is a totally different universe and say, oh yeah, I want to get into that, you know? And so the question becomes, well, what is this big economy that we have going to turn into? And I think it's more, you know, part of it is clean energy, definitely. And I think it's more tech forward stuff, but then there's these other pieces that'll have to be part of it. So one of the interesting things I think about Austin is the sector convergence. We do have all of these different sectors and you can learn a lot from them. And it was interesting because you had mentioned 
in the beginning, right? So people are going more into hard tech, which has much more technical risk associated than necessarily product market fit and business model. And what I found interesting, and obviously I come from, you know, the healthcare background that we've tended to focus on that. It's all been very technical risk product. You know, it's, it's, you know, if you take a therapeutic, if I can make a new oncology drug that works, I don't really need to worry about necessarily the go-to-market fit. It's, it's all technical risk. If it works, people will buy it. But what I'm seeing now in the innovation side actually has been more on business model. We haven't focused enough on it. I mean, you look at like something here locally, like Everly Health. What's the big innovation? The big innovation is taking e-commerce to lab testing, right? Like that, it was more of a business model innovation than a product innovation. And so I wonder in this case, right, while we are shifting now in energy to doing a lot more of technical innovation, you know, new uh, ways of uh, generating energy, new distribution, et cetera, what do you see the opportunity for business model innovation uh, in the sector? Yeah, good question. And it's honestly a whole. I mean, I think energy is a really capital intensive, complex value chain and is because become more complex with clean energy and electricity. You know, it's like that adds just another layer. And the technologists that are able to figure out these innovations don't know how to deal with the business models. And if you can't figure out how to make money with it, it will never go anywhere ever. You know, I mean, I think that is something I'm laser focused on is bridging that business model gap, which is definitely there. Um, I think the big opportunity is taking the business models that we've matured in oil and gas over the last hundred plus years and applying them efficiently to these new sectors. There's because you're already deal, you've already figured out how to structure stuff that's capital intensive, that allocates risk across several party parties. That's very complex from a financial engineering perspective. And oh, we have the talent that knows how to do that stuff too, you know? And but but there's a kind of a, a network bridging challenge there where like you've got the clean technologies and the types of people that are doing that stuff and know how to do the tech and then you've got the people that in the older school industries that know the business models and there's a a matchmaking that needs to go on um in part because of just you know one figuring out the business models but two the you know having the trust relationships that you need to get industry to adopt this stuff that's another giant piece of it so in the medium term, my understanding of the way the Texas budget uh, is, is set up, high oil and gas prices of things that are produced here actually can provide a spike in state revenue. How should we be thinking about this opportunity? Obviously, on a consumer side, it's, it's very negative. So there's a kind of a balance act for that without necessarily going and picking winners and losers. We all saw the, you know, the clean tech bust from whatever, 10, 15 years ago, you know, the cylindros, et cetera, where we pick the winners and losers and Frankly, the government's not really good at that. <laughs> oh, sure. So I guess the first part, yes, Texas is levered to oil and gas, like very levered. We, you know, I, it's 30, 40% of the state budget is direct tax receipts from oil and gas. So we're talking our schools and our roads, you know, like that's a big reason we don't have income taxes. And so I do think there's this, you know, longer term existential threat that if oil and gas does die, 
you know, we have a big giant problem on our hands whenever, whenever that does happen. And we don't know when, you know, and so I consider it kind of a, this unusual blessing in disguise for Texas that oil prices are high right now. So we have some cash to spend, you know, and we really have an opportunity to see the future in a major way, but we need to be smart about it. And I think you're right that you can't, you don't want to necessarily make early, uh, you know, specific kind of execution bets. You need to make market bets like, okay, what are the big markets that are going to be the, you know, stronghold Texas industries of the future? And to me, it seems really, you know, it's robotics, it's advanced manufacturing, and it's clean energy and healthcare. I shouldn't, it's not my focus area, but it's, it's, it should, it's clearly important. <laughs> um, but, and then you focus on seeding those industries. You, you build public-private partnerships to organize the industries, you fund fund managers that are seeding new startups in those arenas. You know, you take a more distributed approach to fueling the economic clusters that make sense for Texas. Um, and then just by nature of taking a market approach, you will have winners, you know, and, and at worst, you're just building up the talent base and expertise base and the type of people that know how to do this stuff that's going to equip you for the future anyway. Well, let me ask you a question. Obviously, in all of our exports of oil and gas, we are basically exporting high-density energy storage materials. Is it now time for us to look at actually exporting the finished product? Is now the time for... Texas to interconnect with the East and West grid and in essence, sell electricity purely. I mean, California, most of their electricity comes from out of state. Is that going to be the replacement? Uh, good question. I mean, this, you know, I don't necessarily have an answer on the grid interconnection. Um, it, that's a very, you know, that's like a political firestorm <laughs> there. I do think that, um, I think that the import export capability is a massive uh, benefit. You know, like, you know, we're we're right in the middle of the globe, and we have a port. We have a couple of them. Like, what a blessing, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and I do think that that we need to diversify. That it can't just be liquids. I think um, when I look at the depth of the market pull of this labor stuff, it's like the world is going to need robots. And oh, humans shouldn't be doing this stuff anyway, you know, and they don't want to and they're not willing to, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, that to me. Yeah is not a problem that's going away. If you look at demographics and, you know, women are having like the birth rate has fallen by like 20% since 2007. It's like, some of these numbers are crazy. Um, and it's a global thing. And, you know, I also think that a more diversified economy is a better thing. You know, it's like, we, we, we can kind of see into the future right now, but to your point, I mean, just, and speaking of imports, exports, like you need the government to focus like, and really make some moves to set us up for the future so that we're not 
you know, Michigan in 2009 and autos crashing around us or, you know, that kind of existential crisis we, we can get in front of. Well, we are becoming one of the uh, major hubs for manufacturing automobiles. They just happen to be EVs. And Tesla, honestly, is a big part of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're part of this whole robot. I mean, these auto, you know, you can think of a car as like the first robot almost. It's like you drive it around, it's you're in control of it, right? Like, um, and all the same reasons that Tesla moved to Texas are true of the broader industrial base. You know, you've got, um, so we have these problems with China. We can't, you know, that is not going to be a labor source for us necessarily going forward. Not one we wanted to be dependent on, but we have a close relationship with Mexico. You know, they, I mean, and oh, here we are. We're right next to them. Like, there's just so many different pieces of it that, that make sense. And of course, China with the one child per family policy is now seeing the negative impact of that <laughs> and will for <laughs> the next 40 out. or 50 years. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oops. So generally speaking, I think we're optimists. So I know we're facing challenges now, but I'm pretty comfortable in saying that we're looking at a future of abundant energy coming at massive scale more than we've seen uh, going uh, currently. That leads to dramatic change in, in innovation. What do you think happens when to innovation when energy is, I'll call it essentially free, but cheap enough that it's not really something that you think about. I love this big dream question. I think it's cool. The, um, I think it's everything. I, I, you know, we call it the clean machine revolution and it's really, you know, rooted in the need for machines. Like the example that I like is, um, you know, the, the advent of the laundry machine how that changed the lives of women everywhere dramatically, you know, just that one single unit of automation. And right now you have a situation globally where like billions of people don't have access to electricity. Billions of people don't have access to the internet. Like we're moving in one direction. We need more automation and more machines. And it really will you know, has the potential to set humanity free. Like if you don't have to spend that time doing rote manual labor, you can enlighten yourself. You can gain knowledge. You can do anything, you know, enlighten, enlighten the entire society. I mean, it's, to me, it's like this rise of the creative class is sort of the dream that we're chasing after, but to, you know, the key to this whole thing is clean and affordable energy. And it's it's like the golden goose. There's no way to do it without it. But I do think it will change, you know, everything. Christy, this has been great. Um, we always like to end on the same question. What's next, Austin? Um, the Texas Technopolis, you know, a, a step into the future. And I think Austin's at the helm of it. I love it. Christy Cardenas. Grit Ventures, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. 
Thanks again for listening and see you soon.